0: I think so many of us look at our lives in a linear fashion instead of realizing that it's both balancing hard work with rest. It's both merging self-discipline with self-compassion. It's both finding harmony between solitude and community, integrating our mind and our body, accepting oneself as sufficient yet capable of growth, etc.
1: Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can fight happiness and health inside and out from self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder that this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any mental or physical illness, and we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. Today, we are talking to John Miles, author of the new book, Passion Struck, and John helps individuals to unlock their ultimate potential and embrace their authentic selves. As the CEO of Passion Struck, best author, keynote speaker, and host of Top Health podcast, John merges deep insights from peak performance and behavioral science with an innate understanding of the human psyche. His mission is to inspire and empower to live intentionally, moving beyond conventional success to lead lives of profound meaning, passion, and authenticity. John is also a veteran with a 30-year career that spans across military leadership, entrepreneurship, global business, and technical operations, life coaching, and strategic innovation. His approach embodies the rigor of that naval training, enriched with a deep understanding of business dynamics and personal growth guiding both individuals and corporations towards unparalleled success. And I appreciate, John, that you are committed to serving others through philanthropy, having helped raise over a million dollars to provide low-rent studios to aspiring artists in St. Petersburg, Florida, and founded the charity Feeding Little Geniuses to Support Underprivileged Children. And you also support Habitat for Humanity and um, have been building with them for two decades. So I've been working on my own gratitude practice lately, and we've shared on the show before about research, specifically the Harvard happiness study that shows longevity and wellness linked to happiness and fulfillment through relationships and abundant mindset, giving back all of those things, keeping us alive and well um, as long as we can from that 85-year study. So I'm excited to dive into a lot of the work that you do today. Um, welcome so so much to the whole view. I know you're used to podcasts, but I'd love if maybe you can share a little bit more about something personal with our listeners, maybe something you don't often talk about or that kind of gives us a little insight to you, something fun more of who you are.
0: Well, Stacy, thank you for that great introduction. I Really appreciate being here and it's an honor to get to serve your audience. And I love that study that you talked about from the Harvard study on advanced aging that Bob Waldinger is now the most current director of. And it was shocking for me in some ways to see the 70-year-old first-time author last year come out with this amazing book that almost immediately becomes an instant New York Times bestseller. And one of the most surprising things to me about it was that as you look at all these men who were in the study, both from rich families, including John F. Kennedy to the poorer side of Boston, it didn't matter how much money they had. It didn't matter how big a high achiever or low achiever it was, as you were saying, it really came down to the importance of their relationships. And for me, that's something that's very important. And as I get older. I realize the importance, especially of the family relationships that we have and the most supportive people in our lives. And one of the things I like to talk about often is that it's those relationships that oftentimes either take us on our journey to becoming who we want to be or deter us from it. So we need to pick them wisely. So it's something that I've have to be very intentional about myself. Because I've had my share of the bad influences in my life. And it's something I think we all need to work through. So relationships are absolutely key.
1: In the spirit of tell me something personal, what is a relationship that you think of when you're talking about that kind of deep relationship that's positive and helps propel you forward to be your best self and feel your best? Like what comes to mind for you?
0: Yes, I personally believe it's I've seen it be easier I think for females to develop close intimate authentic relationships than their male counterparts at times and oftentimes I think males do that with other females I've had a few of these close personal relationships with other males in my life and the most profound one I had was with a dear friend of mine Tim who we pretty much shared everything with each other. And at that time we were both going through divorces in parallel. And so it was such a great sounding board to have another person that I could just be myself around and who, if I needed help, if I had a panic attack at two o'clock in the morning, he would always answer the phone. And unfortunately uh, about seven years ago now, Tim took his own life and it was It has created one of the biggest gaps I've ever found in my life because that type of relationship that you have with another person is just very difficult to replace because it is hard to find someone who wants to know you more than just the superficial level that so many people exist in that we find ourselves in our social circles.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss and thank you for sharing that. I hear exactly what you're saying about that masculine type relationships are difficult to manifest for a lot of people. And I think a lot of it is actually cultural, right? Like this idea of what should be or appropriateness or all these kinds of things. But really when I think about it, like one of the reasons I fell in love with my husband is because he has a very large family and has three brothers or had three brothers. One has passed and just so close with all of them and I saw how vibrant and fun kind of the time that they spent together was and I didn't grow up living with my siblings and there's something magical about that and I think it's a great point that we all need those kind of relationships in our life whether it's friends family whatever that's a important aspect of our own well-being so I know that your book goes way beyond that though and I'm wondering if maybe we could lay some of the foundational information that you speak about specific to behavioral science research, and you also focus on how that relates to peak performance strategies and the intermingling of those is where we can propel ourselves forward. So can you talk a little bit about that and your philosophies? Sure.
0: I'd love to, Stacy. So There are a lot of people out there who talk about self improvement or personal mastery, personal growth, whatever you want to call it. And I've listened to hundreds of them. I'm sure you have too. And oftentimes I find that the messages repeat what other people say or they're based on popular beliefs, et cetera. And so when I came out of my long career in the corporate sector and I was doing my own me search to rebuild myself into the person I wanted to become. I started initially to study a lot of neuroscience and I thought that initially that it was going to be neuroscience that was going to lead to the bigger breakthroughs for me and and understanding neuroscience is absolutely critical. But I was talking to a couple of neuroscientists who told me that if you want more immediate and lasting change that the better thing to study is behavior science, which is really about how people change and what enables us to do that and what prevents us from doing that. And so it was one of the best pieces of advice I had gotten because it really shifted my focus into studying more behavior science and positive psychology, et cetera. And as I got further into that. It really did show me that if you're going to be intentional about the behavior changes that you're making, either shifts to your behavior or mindset, that there is really science that backs this up and that I wanted to build that into what I was telling people because it's one thing to share information, but I wanted to make sure that it was really backed by scientific research, whether that was in lab study or field study. That was being done at universities across the world. And so I think that's in part what distinguishes both my podcast and my book from others is that all the principles that I try to teach are backed by science in one way or another, or some form of psychology, and in some cases, neuroscience as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, think of when I hear the word behavioral science, my mind immediately goes to. The idea of needing to build habits or things that we say, like you have to do things over and over again to build them in. What are some of the other areas that you looked into as it relates to behavioral science specifically?
0: Yeah, so definitely habit formation is a core component of this. And one of my favorite people who has worked on it is BJ Fogg, who wrote Tiny Habits. And so Forming those habit loops is critically important, but so is the science of choice. And one of the people I've studied is Michelle Seeger, who wrote a great book called the joy choice. She's a professor at the university of Michigan. And really what this talks about is that our lives are made up of tens of thousands of choices every single day. The average person makes 60,000 to 90,000 decisions. Most of those we just make out of unintentional rigor. We're not intentional about how we're approaching the choices we make in our days. And what the science really teaches you is that these micro choices add up over time and they accumulate over your hours, days, months, years to either a path to becoming who you absolutely want to be, or to a waterfall of doom and regret. And it's really interesting because there's science out of Cornell university led by Tom Gilovich, who happens to be a psychologist who ended up examining about three to 4,000 individuals who were approaching death. And he asked all them what the biggest regret they ever had in their life was. And to me, the findings were pretty shocking because it wasn't the mistakes that we make. It was the what-ifs, the should-haves, it was not pursuing an ideal life. And 76% of them came back with the same answer. And the way that you change that is by using these micro-choices. Another element that I really looked at is something called self-discrepancy theory, which is really around the, the science of future self. And I've studied work by Hal Hirschfeld out of UCLA's Anderson School of Business. And what he really gets into is how you project your future self. And in self-descripancy theory, we have three versions of self. We have our actual self, which is who we are today. We have our ought self, O-U-G-H-T, which is who we think we should be. It's what society kinds of tells us we should be. It's what our burdens project on us. And the other self is our ideal self, which is who we could become. And so what I really look at is how do you go from your actual self to that ideal self? Because I think most of us, and I found myself in this own trap, end up getting into our ought self and becoming who we think we should be. Another element uh, that I studied was the, the topic of invisible influences. And I looked at the research from D- Jonah Berger out of the University of Pennsylvania on these and how invisible visible influences, whether it's the environment we put ourselves in or the people we surround ourselves with, as we talked about at the beginning, and how detrimental they can be on our life's journey. So those are just a few examples.
1: All so great and interesting. And I just mentally added. Things that I needed to read to my Goodreads list. So thanks for that. I find it's personally really difficult for me to strike a balance between, I guess, my ought self, but I think more true is this version of myself that helps me to have the appearance of, or whatever it might be. In my case, it's overachieving perfectionist because I'm fighting all different kinds of things in my mind, both to myself as well as how I want others to perceive me and all these kinds of things. And trying to find a balance between that version of myself, which didn't actually produce the happiness and fulfillment that I wanted it to and wasn't really healthy for me because of burnout and all those other kinds of things. And then this trying to be my ideal self or what I call my best self. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that peak performance mindset, but also how we can manage ourselves in terms of preventing long-term negative false outcomes like burnout. How do we strike a balance with all of that?
0: Yes, I, I happen to be listening to one of your previous, uh, recent episodes where you covered burnout and self-doubt in it. And it's absolutely something that's core to my messaging as well, because I think the higher achiever you are, there's actually a higher correlation to having self-doubt and imposter syndrome and things like that. And I, if I'm being vulnerable, I certainly saw it in myself. I like to quote Henry David Thoreau and he has the quote, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I don't think that's accurate. I think it's the mass of people lead lives of quiet desperation. And you can see this in that Cornell study that I showed, but also if you just look at the studies that Gallup is putting out, where they're showing that 900 million people worldwide in 142 countries feel unfulfilled in the life that they're leading. And so what causes that? I know for me, I had a couple of pinnacle moments in my life that went on complete detours from what I imagined as I was younger, the path I would take in life. And one of these was when I came out of the military, I expected to go into the FBI. I had the Quantico class set up. I was days away from going when I got a complete curveball thrown at me. Congress couldn't pass the budget. Imagine that. And my class gets recycled. And I am thinking naively that this recycling means it's just shifted back a couple of weeks or at worst case, a couple of months. It turned out to be more than 36 months later. And I ended up going into this business career that I never dreamed of as a kid that I wanted to sit behind a desk, but that's what I found myself doing. And I think it just accumulates and that's what people don't understand. Whether it's burnout or self-doubt or feeling like we're an imposter or perfectionism it's not like one day you wake up and it just happens to me it's it gets back to those micro choices we make and over a period of time this foundation under you keeps getting bigger and bigger with whatever that is and you don't even notice it because it's often happening so subtly in the background that it's like depression that just grows over time and so that's what happened to me and the more i got into my career and the more tunnel focused I was on what I thought at the time would bring me happiness, all the success, the accolades, the money, the cars, what have you, I absolutely found myself in that state of quiet desperation and that I had pursued becoming my odd self. So how do you break free from that is, is the fundamental question. And there isn't an easy path to it because it's taken you, whoever you are, a long time to get there. And that's the first realization that you have to have some self-compassion about and some self-awareness is just this thing, the life that got you to where you are, it's going to take you probably an equal amount to break free from it. And it's not probably what a listener wants to hear, but just like that slow creep that eventually explodes into A hockey stick moment of you feeling despair or numbness or apathy or whatever state it is, the same thing happens on the flip side. And you start out to me, it's almost like in the old days, when we had a car and we didn't have a cell phone and it breaks down, you've got really two options. Either you can push the car or you're going to hitchhike. And if you're hitchhiking, you're putting yourself in this desperate situation where you're just hoping someone is going to help you. Whereas you push the car, Granted at first, it's going to be very difficult, but over time it's going to get easier and you'll likely get some downgrades that you'll pick up speed, et cetera. And I think the same thing happens with the changes we make in our life. And an an analogy that I really like to make Stacey, is when I was trying to come out of my period of quiet desperation, I went to see a therapist. and. It was some of the the best guidance I've ever been given. He had me do this visualization exercise and he said, I want you to picture yourself walking into your kitchen and there's a stool there. And I want you to imagine sitting down on that stool. Now think about what's underneath it for you. Your life has become imbalanced and all you have is one support that's holding you up and it's become the constant grind and what's it doing to you? And I'm like, it's making me topple over and there's nothing that's going to catch me. And he said, now I want you to think about your life in a different way. And imagine this stool can have as many supports underneath it that you want. They're going to make you a more fulfilled person and they can be anything a listener wants them to be. But for me, I made them become my physical health, mental health, spiritual health, emotional health, and relationship health. And then I knew I needed to pick one as a starting point. So I picked mental health because at that point in time. I felt numb. I felt apathetic. I felt in a state that I wouldn't wish on anyone else. And I knew if I were going to improve the other areas, I had to get into my inner self and practice self leadership before I was going to be able to do anything of good for anyone else. So for me, that's where it all started.
1: It makes a lot of sense and is obviously supported by all the research that we talked about earlier. And I think you can't really. Help others if you don't help yourself is a thing that people say all the time. But I think it also applies in this idea of if you aren't really focused on strengthening that part of yourself, your mental health, how can you possibly go about achieving some of the healthy relationships, for example? Once you've worked on your own mental health, you might find that some of the relationships that you thought were supporting you were actually detrimental to what you want in your terms of your long term life, so I think it's um, great that we started there, both for yourself as well as a lot of the work overall that we're doing on our health and wellness. I think we talked before the show started about having had a lot of prior show experience with being very health focused and never once through well maybe towards the end right but 500 episodes were focused on so many things about health and never once diving into that really important aspect of mental health and so it's where a lot of the show focus has been lately because I think for those of us who are experiencing some sort of negative health outcome if we're not thinking about what are the things that feel off in our life or what are the things that in this case, like the stool is feeling wobbly. If you're feeling burnout or if you're feeling these other kinds of things, if you're not in a healthy relationship, oftentimes we choose relationships that reflect a relationship that we had previously in our life that we want to try to fix, right? Like something wasn't right. And so we put ourselves in the situation again, hoping for a different outcome. And it's just over and over again, we're repeating the same problems until we actually address them. So I, you gave the car analogy, and I think it's a really good one because I think about how heavy that car would be. I've actually, I don't know if you know this about me, but I was a competitive strongman. I was like strongest woman in Virginia kind of thing. And so I have pulled, not only pushed cars, but I have pulled trucks and done all kinds of crazy things. And so I can physically feel the heaviness of that car as you're pushing it. And while there might be downgrades, sometimes there's probably also going to be uphill battles, so to speak, that you're going to have to face when pushing that. And I think that it's a good analogy because as you're working on these factors for yourself, it is not easy. It is a heavy burden to carry to reframe your life, to acknowledge that there are things in your life that you want to change. And that isn't just a magic wand of, oh, I want to be better today. And so, and thus it is so. It is very hard, long work to unravel a lot of these automatic choices that we fall into. I think that was a really great perspective that I think a lot of people will be able to resonate with that, right? Like your FBI experience and how we just find ourselves in situations and My corporate career was definitely a series of very fortunate events, but also sometimes unintentional events. And then I was in a career where I was like, I don't even know how I got here. And it was very different from the life that I had envisioned for myself. I was good at it. That didn't mean that it was good for me. And I think a lot of people can probably envision themselves in that situation or are on a path As you suggest, that doesn't really feel aligned to who they are or their values or what they want their ideal self to be. Or I love the perspective of how did you see yourself when you were a child? Or as a child, how did you envision your future life? Because I think that really gets to a little bit of like, what does our inner child want or need? In addition to like, what were your dreams and goals? And relating that back to, What would you, as a person who is about to die, wish that you had done previously, like all these things that you mentioned earlier? And I'm wondering, what can we do when we're feeling that happiness? We're in the slog of pushing the car where it just feels off. It doesn't feel right. And maybe we don't even know all of why that is. And. What do you suggest as a first step? I know you talked about therapy, but beyond kind of that first step, what are some of the ones that you outline in your book or that you find yourself working with people when you're coaching to like work through this, the stickiness, the, the eh feeling that sometimes we all have.
0: I think the first step is doing a concept called life crafting. I the way that the book is organized, and maybe that's important for people to understand, is it includes 12 principles that I uncover in the book. Six of them are mindset shifts. Six of them are behavior shifts. And that makes up two sections of the book. The third section is on the psychology of progress, which is once you understand these principles, how do you put them into action into your life? Because I didn't want it to be a book that was just read. I want it to be applicable. For people to use. And the way I came up with the 12 principles was by studying about 750 different luminaries, vanguards, whatever you want to call them, everything from educators to actors and actresses, professional athletes to CEOs, astronauts, military leaders, et cetera. So a wide gamut. And I kept finding that those who were able to break through, those who were achieving this path to becoming their best selves followed these principles and then I tried them out on myself to make sure that they actually worked before I I documented them in the book but the first principle is something that I call a mission angler and I picked that name on purpose because I love these analogies and here in Tampa Bay where I live it's a fertile ground for fishing and for anyone who likes to fish and is good at it It's not as if you wake up on a Saturday morning, pick some random time that you're going to go into the boat, drive haphazardly to some point in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico and put your line into the water and expect you're going to catch fish. Most people are very intentional about fishing from the time that they get up so that they're avoiding the heat of the sun to where they're going to, which is where previous people have reported finding fish or Normal grounds to looking at moon phases and current tidal patterns, etc. But I bring that all up because that discipline that we utilize to go fishing, most people don't utilize the same principles to craft the life that they want or the intention behind it. And so, th- this to me is the starting point: is you have to get clearer in some way, shape, or form on where you picture yourself in the future before you can create the actions that are going to get you there. But ultimately it is by taking actions that we develop the courage to change and to continue to take more actions. So it's, you have to do both in parallel, think about where you want to go and then start aligning your actions with your ambitions and your aspirations. And I think that's the key. So that's what that whole first chapter is really about. And one of the things that I've discovered over time, as I've studied more and more behavior science is this concept of self-discrepancy theory, which was created by Richard Ryan and Edward DC, who are two of the most cited, they might be the most cited people right now in behavior science, but this self-determination theory Really when I discovered it, it was like a light bulb went off and they talk about three things in it that really make up self-determination theory. It's competence, autonomy and relatedness. So autonomy is really the, the fact that we have agency over our lives. It's the choices and actions that we take that culminate into us going in a certain direction. Competence really gets into the mastery of the skills or knowledge that we bring in and how we apply it on our path. And relatedness gets into what we talked about at the beginning, which is the importance of the relationships that we have in our life. And interestingly enough, if you study people in blue zones, they practice these three things. They have this, in addition to having good health principles, they in almost all cases have a strong purpose that's driving them a strong agency that's taking on that purpose they spend their lives becoming masters of their craft and in these blue zones the relationships that they surround themselves in are extremely important so applying this self-discrepancy theory on this path to your future self is extremely important and so that's what i cover in the first chapter and i give Two great examples, as I try to do in each chapter, of people who have used this in their own life. And in this chapter, I focus on Gary Vanderchuk and also Jim McKelvey, who founded Square, and how they use this mission angler philosophy to craft the lives that they're both leading right now.
1: I love that you brought up some of the stories and examples because I think that's something that can help people as you noted earlier, figure out how to implement things in their own lives or see a broader picture of things, relate to it, so to speak. And you've worked with a lot of incredible individuals as well as telling the story of others. I'm wondering if you can share some of the stories, whether it's the square one or others, but and how confronting and transcending, specifically limiting beliefs, I think is another that we haven't really talked about. You mentioned imposter syndrome, but I think that's another one that keeps people from striving towards that ideal self-right is this fear of failure or whatever that limiting belief might be. So I'm wondering if you can share some of those stories and examples of how people work to overcome what that looks like.
0: Sure. So in the book, I talk about a woman named Kirsty Ennis, and Kirsty was a Marine Corps sergeant. She was on the end of her tour, and it seems like so many veterans I talk to it's it's like this story repeats they're at the end of their tour. She was actually on her last mission. She was part of a helicopter crew, and her helicopter crashed and uh, when she woke up and uh, Lay in the hospital bed, she realized that she had very traumatic injuries from traumatic brain injury to losing both her legs to other ailments from shrapnel and everything else that impacted her. And it's an interesting parallel story to a podcast that I've actually got coming out tomorrow with a a gentleman named Harry Buddha Magar, who is part of the Gurkhas, who are the Nepal famed fighting forces that have served alongside the British army for well over a century. And a similar thing happened to him. He was in Afghanistan on a basic patrol one of the last days of his tour when he stepped on an IED and also lost both his legs. And so when you think about both those examples and what difficulties the majority of us face, these two individuals were posed in a situation where their life was forever changed. And I think for both of them, they both started out in the path of really doubting that their life was going to amount to anything. And in the case of Harry, he started to really drink himself to death because he thought death was a better solution to the life that he was going to lead. And his legs were amputated above the knee. And in his case, it was looking at his son through the eyes of the person that he had become and really coming to the realization, is this the image of the person I want to have my son remember me as? Or do I want to become a better person so that he has a father that he looks up to? And so his path Well, actually, both of their paths became getting immersed into action sports, and it was through those action sports that they both found fulfillment. And then ironically, it led them both to want to get into mountaineering, which to me seems like the last thing in the world I would want to do if I were missing my legs. But Kirsty now has climbed uh, six of the seven peaks. She has tried unsuccessfully to climb Everest now two times. And Harry has climbed Mount Blanc. And earlier this year, he climbed, he's from Nepal and he climbed Everest, becoming the first person to ever scale it uh, as a person who has lost both legs above his knees. And I think both just show you the power of saying, I can in life when mo- so many of us, when we have life altering situations that we find ourselves in, say, I can't. And to me, It's really rebuilding this mindset of redefining what success looks like for us. And then, again, it's taking actions that build up the courage inside, and those boundary expanding actions lead to more courage, which allows us to expand the horizons of what we think we can accomplish and help us to get over the limiting beliefs that we have. So those are two stories from the book or one story from the book, one from the podcast, I'd be happy to, to give another one on another topic.
1: And if you're ready to switch to Safer, head to realeverything.com slash podcast to find out more on how to get a gift of my favorite better beauty from me. And you can combine it with Beauty Counter's Clean For All 20% off site-wide code, which also applies to already discounted regimens. That's up to 40% savings on high performance, four-step skincare or makeup routine. And at realeverything.com slash podcast, I have a skin quiz to help you match to the perfect routine for you. If you don't love it, you have 60 days to return it. No questions asked. Spring clean your personal care products. Switch out some for safe and effective ones. Give the brand that literally changed America's personal care industry a try. 23 human health endpoints throughout nine testing batches. Ensure the final product is always safe for you and your loved ones. Unlike the... Notifications that you're seeing in the news lately about PFAS, and benzene, and asbestos. Nothing is going to be contaminated because it has already been tested. Shopping with me supports my woman-owned small business, and you're voting with your wallet by choosing a certified B Corp that is mission-led and whose goal is to help get safer products into the hands of everyone through health protective laws while also giving back to people and the planet through sustainable fair trade ingredients. Go to beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth, just like any other website, and choose me, Stacy Toth, S T A C Y T O T H, so I can thank you. I, well, I love both of those examples. And I think maybe you will think of another one because I would love to talk about specifically resilience. So I know like these are great examples of resilience. And I think one of the things that I've learned that I need to help specifically my children do. I have four teenagers, and one of them is a foster child who's been through a lot of trauma and different things in their life. And it is very easy for brains to get stuck in this idea of, I can't. And these examples are fantastic. And I can just hear my children's voice and my head saying, Well, I could never do that, right? Like these people have something special or different or I'm in a different circumstance or still stuck in that mindset of, gosh, what am I even doing if this person is scaling mountains without their legs? Like that's incredible. And I hear on the other side of my brain Brene Brown's work on resilience is something that I've really been leaning into. I first heard her speak about it listening to um, the audio book, Atlas of the Heart, and she spoke to it specifically about children and about how as a parent, it's really difficult to watch your child suffer, that you just want to like step in and fix things and make everything better and easy for them. But that doesn't build resilience. And that in allowing our children to experience negativity in life, it helps them build resilience under our roof so that we can help reframe their brains and like do this kind of positive action. And I I think that as I'm seeing, especially newer generations, I think Gen X and beyond have been through, like my grandparents went through the depression my grandfather was in multiple wars. You have military experience. There's resilience built there that I'm not seeing in our younger generations. Although my children have been through a pandemic and what they went through is nothing that I could possibly understand because my high school experience was very different. We didn't have social media, we didn't have a pandemic, we didn't have a lot of the things that they are building resilience to. But I worry when we're talking about some of these like bigger things, as it relates to, am I going to be able to move forward or do these things that I would really want out of my life, but I'm convincing myself that maybe I don't because I think I can't, that becomes this, it's almost like an emotional muscle, I think, resilience, right? And being able to tell yourself As Brené says, like, that's the story I'm telling myself versus the reality of what's happening. And so I know that you have, you know, thoughts and processes around reframing and building that emotional muscle, building that resilience. And in these stories that you're telling, what does that look like as we kind of work in ourselves? Because it is difficult to recognize those moments in ourselves. There's a reason that I hear my children's voice and not my own voice around the things that I'm probably needing a little push myself, right?
0: Yeah, Stacey, I can talk about this from a personal perspective, and then I'll give an example of someone I have in the book. So for me, resilience is something I've had to build from a very young age. When I was five years old, we lived in Bay Village, Ohio at the time, and I was playing in the yard that separated our two houses with a bunch of our neighborhood kids. And we were playing tag and I guess we were getting rough and agitated and I tagged a person really hard and then I was running and this person tagged me and unfortunately the momentum of him pushing me carried me in the air and I went uh, straight through our basement window and had a traumatic brain injury. And at a young age, I was confronted now with a speech impediment cognitive difficulties, sensory and auditory processing issues, headaches, vision issues and from that point forward as Jim Quick often says I was like Jim I was the boy with the broken brain. It's not something that I've talked about a lot until recently, but it was something that also being an introverted person made it twice as difficult for me to want to express myself because I would say the wrong things. I would talk with a lisp. I couldn't remember words. I would mispronounce words. Kids would laugh at me and make fun at me. And just from a very young age, I had to become resilient inside to face up to those things and to realize my limitations, but to also realize that those limitations could either define me or I could find ways to overcome them. And so that has been a path that I've taken throughout the rest of my life is I've really looked at adversity as something that when it happens, regardless of what it is, I think you need to sit with it for a little bit, process it, get the anguish out about it. But then you either have a choice like I did when I didn't get that opportunity at the FBI or when I worked at Arthur Anderson and overnight uh, found myself out of a job because of Enron. You can either feel a lot of self-pity or you can do something about it. And I think it really comes down to how we cognitively reframe the situation and how we deal with it. So a good example of this that I highlight in the book in a chapter called The Perspective Harnesser is a long-term dear friend of mine, Chris Cassidy, who some of the listeners may know. Chris is a fairly famous person because not only is he an Navy seal but he was also the chief astronaut at nasa and and disney did a whole film about him that some of the listeners may have seen but i've known chris since we were both 17 years old doing push-ups at two o'clock in the morning out on hillsides and boot camp so a huge perspective shifter himself i like to tell the story of when he went to buds and He tells me that the difference between someone getting through buds or not getting through it has everything to do with how you're mentally viewing the adversities that you're going through. And he said that for him, he had to shift his perspective completely. And a lot of us see our lives as either or, and that's what in Western culture, a lot of us have been taught as linear thinking. But something that I cover in this chapter is the behavior science around paradoxical thinking or both and thinking and how powerful this is. So as he was going through BUDS, he began to see his time there as if it was a rubber band and that time can be expanded or reduced. It was really malleable based on how you were able to see it. And so he started to approach his trials of getting through buds as short periods that he saw as a band expanding and that trying time was going to end. And if he could keep himself mentally focused, that it's going to end and work through that small period, then he started to embrace things such as how do I get from lunch to getting through this next endeavor that we have to then getting to dinner, to then being able to get into a warm bed at night before I prepare myself to do it again. And I think it's that mentality of thinking of our lives as that these events are trying times, but that they end. And using that mindset to help propel us towards these periods of resilience, I think is an extremely important lesson. And he also tells me about while he was going through BUDS, as hard as he had it sitting there in the cold water, there was a Thai officer who was going through the program as a foreign exchange student who, he said this person was absolutely miserable. He would, we would watch this gentleman and he said his whole body at times was almost convulsing because he was in so much anguish yet he never gave up. And he said, as I observed him, it made me not want to give up either. And it made me keep pushing through the exercises and I ended up supporting him. He supported me and we were supporting others who were going through buds. And so I think that is one of my favorite chapters in the book, because I think so many of us look at our lives in a linear fashion, instead of realizing that it's both balancing hard work with rest it's both merging self-discipline with self-compassion. It's both finding harmony between solitude and community, integrating our mind and our body, accepting oneself as sufficient yet capable of growth, etc.
1: I love the and philosophy. And so I'm looking forward to diving into that a little bit more. And I've learned it in the context of Psychology and simply working to reframe a lot of thoughts from as you're saying linear. I think a lot of us say but when we really mean, and so I've tried to start changing my wording around that, and it's as you're saying incredibly powerful. For those of us who are not in the know, what is buds?
0: Oh, buds is a uh, basic underwater demolition school. That uh, it's it's about a half a year program that uh, the SEALs have to go through, and it typically has had only a 25 to 30% pass rate.
1: I figured it was related to, as you were speaking, I was like, oh, it's got to be the difficult part of what SEAL training is. But I had never heard that term before, so thank you.
0: Yeah, B-U-D slash S.
1: (laughs) Got it. But can I just
0: give the audience a couple of these paradoxes just so that they can understand them? Yeah. So one of the paradoxes I like to talk about is the terror paradox of tolerance. When you think of absolute tolerance, that can destroy tolerance. A society that tolerates everything, including intolerance, can become intolerant. True tolerance requires limits to preserve diversity and freedom. That's one. Another one is the growth paradox. Real growth is like farming. It's not instant gratification. It requires consistent effort and patience, which then leads to exponential returns over time. Lulls and plateaus are not failures, but they're stages for future growth. And those are just a few of the ones I cover, but there's the failure paradox. There's the hedonic paradox for people who are familiar with their hedonic treadmill that we often talk about in behavior science and so much more.
1: Absolutely. And I think as we consider some of these bigger applications, it helps us to think about what are some of these in our own existence that we are limiting ourselves or not allowing that empowerment, the self agency to say, I can do this, right? Like all of that combines to where we end up either in our or in our ideal self. So brings it all together. And how I like to always end the show is to give listeners something positive or actionable that they can take forward to be of service to either work on themselves or to others. And we've talked about a lot of different things in the show, talked about your book having many different steps and or different Areas that people can begin this work or focus on it. But I'm wondering what is something that people can take away today and not feel overwhelmed by all the things they need to do? Or I never like to leave people feeling like, oh, I am in my own self and I don't even know what to do about it. So if someone is feeling that way right now, what would you suggest for them to kind of take away with something actionable they can do?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking me that Stacy and two things we were just talking about in these previous sections were self-doubt or negative thought patterns and this change of perspective that we can have. So I think a good thing, since those are the most recent things we discussed would be to give some advice on cognitive restructuring, which are strategies that help people to recognize and alter their negative thought patterns. So the advice I would have for the audience. Is that the first thing that you need to do is you need to become aware of your thinking. And this process starts by making our automatic thoughts conscious. You need to take an inventory of the problematic ways that you're thinking. And then the next thing you can do is to evaluate it. So, why do I feel that those things are going to happen? After you do that, you can get rational about it. So, once you've identified a thought as problematic or unhealthy, then you need to go through understanding and identify why is it problematic to begin with. This begins with us beginning to ask why we think it is true, whether it's true, and how close to the truth it actually is, and then finally replace it with alternatives to that way of thinking. So first step, become aware of your thinking. Second, evaluate it. Third, get rational about it. And fourth, replace it.
1: I love that. And I think I want to encourage listeners to just take one thought at a time and not feel like you need to apply this principle to everything all at once. Because I, my personal experiences, that doesn't set you up for success. It's really like the thoughts that, show up over and over again, maybe in different kind of ways in your life, but being able to have that analysis repeatedly every time those thoughts come up on just that one particular area until you're kind of feeling a little more strength in that emotional muscle, so to speak, before moving on to other areas. I don't know, John, if you feel the same way, but I personally find that when you try to do everything all at once, you're not as successful as if you're building in those habits on the smaller things first.
0: No, it's absolutely true. I I think it's one of the major reasons that New Year's resolutions fail so quickly is people try to do a big bang. And my advice to any listener out there is just pick a minuscule thing to start working on. It could even be improving your physical exercise. And what I want people to understand is Maybe for you, you haven't done physical exercise in a while. Maybe you haven't even gone for a walk in a while. And so the first day, all you can do is put your shoes on. Well, that's still a positive step in the right direction. Maybe the next day, all you're able to do is get outside the door and you're able to walk a hundred yards and come back. It's still a positive step. And then you just build upon it. I remember when I was in the military, I worked alongside this uh, Navy captain who was a heavy smoker. And he wanted to get himself in shape, and he started. He said, "I'm going to set a goal that I want to run a marathon." And we had these telephone poles that were maybe, if they were a football field apart, that would have been a stretch. So it wasn't that long a distance. And at first, he, he couldn't even make it halfway from one to the other. But uh, about eighteen months later, he was running marathons and had quit smoking. And it's and what I think people don't realize is when you start fixing any area of your life. A ripple effect is going to happen in ways that you can't even imagine, or it's going to start fixing other areas of your life as you get more confidence and courage to explore more and to take more risks and to do more things.
1: Absolutely. That is 100% my experience as well. And if you tell yourself, oh, I'm doing this one thing because I really want the big things, then you're not being honest with yourself. Like, really, truly focus in on the one thing because the rust you'll either make space for or will naturally happen or whatever but you have to be truly willing just to work on the the little thing that you can be successful at small wins i call them right like you you have to feel that positive result in order to beget more positivity the snowball of goodness so to speak so it's the opposite of your what did you call it the waterfall of doom and negativity um, <laughs> Yes, so definitely use that one in the future. So, I call Jeff, it the, the so this.
0: I call it the tsunami of greatness or the waterfall of doom and regret.
1: There you go. I love it,
0: Stacy. Thank you so much for having me today. It is such an honor to be here, and your audience is amazing. And I can't wait to serve them,
1: listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to keep in touch with John, definitely go to his website, johnrmiles.com. dot com, and we'll put links in the show notes for you because he's also got social media under the same name and his book, Passion Struck, we want to make sure you have access to that. And John, thank you so much for being a part of the show. And I want to encourage everyone to check out the list of resources that we've put in those show notes, because I'm going to pull a lot of the stuff that you were mentioning, John, about different studies and different resources of people that you're referencing so I know I want to add them to my list and I'm sure listeners do as well so thank you for all of that and listeners if you would like to get all of our shows delivered to your inbox ad free make sure to head over to patreon.com slash the whole view it's a really great way to support the show that we create and produce ourselves and if you enjoyed the show I also love it if you could leave a review saying so it costs you nothing except just a few seconds of your time makes a huge difference in my being able to continue to do this work. Don't forget to follow or subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using. And as always, we appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal change. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. John, it's been wonderful talking to you today. Thank you so much. And I hope listeners check out, what is the name of your podcast, actually? We didn't mention that.
0: Oh, The podcast is The Passion Struck Podcast.